There's there's a thing I, I I'd like to emphasize about that before we go on, you know, and, and it has to do with the self conception and the branding of Amazon as sort of like a tech colossus. You know, like we're the internet company, we're doing shipping, and like we're super innovative. And you know, the the business model you're describing is the opposite of innovation in terms of like classical like economic reasoning. Production, more productivity is more output with less work, you know, like you invent a new steel foundry machine that produces more steel with fewer hours. And so like, you know, that's, that's sort of the whole, the story of, I think the, the number of man hours required for, for a a production of, you know, pig iron or whatever has gone down by like 99.9% or something like that since the early industrial revolution in the 18th century. Um, This is just using people up. No, this is like not even this is if the analogy is is enslavement and slavery, it's not even like post cotton gin slavery. It's like the West Indies where like, you know, an enslaved person would would do that for like seven years and die because of the work. You know what I mean? It's it's more like that. Just squeezing the life out of people. Yeah. And 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 you're you're also, you know, you're you're. Your uh, 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 pre- the business model predicated on exploitation, and then also predicated on everyone else having to deal with the consequences of having to work these jobs, right? So, like a lot of I've read, uh, uh, you know, I-, I believe in your coverage, but also elsewhere, some people end up disabled after working out this stuff. They have like permanent, you know, life r- sort of altering or ruining problems, or like they, you know, their backs shot, they can barely stand or walk, you know, and like that, uh, that, that's a problem that like people got to go on disability insurance or something like that, or they just go without, you know, now the rest of society doesn't have that person available to work. And like, so it's, it just really cuts against the image of Amazon. I think, you know, it's fair to say it's like, oh, this is like such a produ- uh, a productive, innovative Silicon Valley tech genius. Like, no, you're just being a ruthless, you know, corporate overlord and like just whipping people into just doing more crappy jobs. Like that is not that's a tale as old as time. You know, you're just you're doing the same thing that like feudal lords used to do to get more corn out of their serfs. You know, this is this is not 20th century, 21st century innovation. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, returning to the point about the injuries, right? Last year, Amazon was responsible for nearly half of all injuries in the warehouse industry with a rate of injury of 6.8 per 100 workers compared to 3.3 per 100 workers at other warehouses. So that means that workers suffered 38,300 injuries in 2021, right? So so when we talk about the jobs being grueling and breaking people's bodies, like it's no hyperbole. Like that is, that's the kind of job that um, Amazon offers. And it's unnecessary, as you say, you know, like... I'm sure those other warehouse companies are not like models of of the very best, <laughs> Safety, right. safest place you could possibly imagine. Like, I'm sure that's they're probably kind of crummy jobs, too. But like Amazon, totally in a class by itself and just just wrecking people. And that's not even to mention the covid dangers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. R- rant aside there. Uh, the um. so. Can you tell us about this, the Amazon labor union uh, experience? You know, what what made this? There, there are many aspects of the, the union campaign that were unusual uh, from the fact that it had virtually no 
like formal institutional support, at least from the the uh, established labor movement, what remains of it. And they kind of broke all the rules of union organizing, you know, that that people have sort of developed over the last decades. Um, so can you tell us, you know, what what was the story with that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think in many ways it's it harkens back to the organizing of the 1930s. Right. So they did a lot of organizing worker to worker safety and worker and working conditions were prime motivators behind Amazon workers walkouts since the pandemic and behind union drives. And that was true on Staten Island, as it was true in Chicago, as it was true in Maryland, where there were some walkouts coordinated by Amazonians United. So these conditions basically drove people to the point of saying enough is enough. We're going to organize. So what we saw in Staten Island was the momentum of the pandemic, people f- feeling like in their bones that their employer didn't care if they died, and that snowballed into actions. So Chris Smalls you know, staged a walkout in 2020 over safety conditions. He was subsequently fired along with other two other workers that were disciplined. Uh, two of them fired uh, and one disciplined, given a final warning. So, so this was not something that came out of thin air. You could say that they were organizing for about nearly a year. And through the experience of trying to make Amazon a dignified workplace, they were transformed into organizers. So that rank and file um, initiative is what I tried to highlight in the prospect, in the piece that I wrote for the prospect where it wasn't just that there was one one worker that was done wrong by Amazon and was angry and that righteous anger transformed him into an organizer. It's that there were the conditions were there for other workers to also be transformed. And it was that combination of these grueling working conditions, the outreach that workers felt that snowballed into a unionization effort. Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems to me that, um, you know, great interviews here, by the way, it, because it seems to me the relationships that you document meant so much among the workers and helped so much uh, to give the kind of trust you need to face this, you know, trillion dollar behemoth that, that you know, your livelihood depends upon. Um, but I also noticed that these relationships weren't just, you know, caring people. These were people that had a lot of cultural awareness, spoke many languages, had a facility with speaking to many different types of people and and doing what, I mean, what Mark said you have to do is showing the true universal identity among all workers, right? Uh, did, did you find in, in your journalism that um, there, there was something uh, different in the success here that was born of of those connections and, and the, the ability of the rank and file to, to reach so many different kinds of people? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the organizers were very talented at spotting natural leaders. And those leaders hailed from a diverse you know, range of countries. There were immigrant workers that were from Latin America, immigrant workers from African countries. And what, what I think really what was really interesting about this is that usually in organizing campaigns, the boss would use those differences to divide people. And what they did is that they actually turned those structures, those subcultures into an advantage. And they started organizing people on the basis of ethnic, you know, religious language lines and brought people together so that they could define what this union was. 
So another thing here that was key in terms of talking about what was unprecedented is that, you know, usually in a union drive, you get workers that are really upset with working conditions. They contact an established union. The union comes in, meets with a committee of workers, tells those workers, hey, can you get more of your friends to come and join us? And then they have an underground campaign for a few months, maybe years sometimes, where they are, you know, building up this committee before they go public. These folks, before they even had a committee, they went public. You know, they said, we're going to build a union right after the Bessemer defeat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at that point, you know, it was people that, that didn't even work in the warehouse that said they were going to do this. And it just seems to have the momentum just was incredible that other people were, they created this pull of attraction that people could come around to and, and rally behind. And that, I mean, that's unheard of. You don't generally do that because when you begin a unionization effort, you have, that's the, that's the peak of your support. Through the course of the campaign, right. you lose support. These people gain support as they went along. So Incredible. I, I mentioned Brima Sila, one of the, one of the key leaders who was a teacher uh, at private schools in Staten Island. And he, he came on board probably like weeks before the campaign was over, but he was trusted with recruiting other African workers. And he had standing in his community. He served on civic groups in, on Staten Island. And that gave him a, a moral authority that allowed him to speak with confidence about why we should support this union. And that's half of the work that a union organizer does is mapping a workplace, identifying who are the key leaders, who eats lunch with whom, who, you know, who's, who commutes to home with the, with the same group of friends. A lot of the organizing is really unsexy. It's not like your Norma Ray holding up a union sign. <laughs> right. it's, it, it's more of like paying attention to those nuances, right, of who, who sits together, who, who talks badly about whom and even who do people that are grouchy talk positively about, right? So that, that work takes many months and these folks are able to, to map things out, uh, you know, incredibly quickly. Um, another thing that worked to their advantage is that when the union busters came in and they started holding captive audience meetings, workers were outraged by what they saw when the union busters will kick out their co-workers out of these meetings. And that was a galvanizing event. So this older gentleman, Brima, witnessed uh, one of the key organizers being thrown out of a captive audience meeting. And he met with him afterwards and asked, you know, what happened? What's, what's going on here? Why were you kicked out? And through the course of that conversation, he learned more about the union and got involved. So Amazon's union busting was helpful to the organizing effort. Wow. <laughs> Incre incredible. incredible. I, I think it's really it's really worth emphasizing the degree to which this kind of thing completely blows out of the water all of the previous expectations you know we've come to have about the labor movement, you know, that that like these were the sort of uh you know the golden rules or the 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 the, the, the ironclad, you know, sort of guidebook that you have to follow. You know, you have to have a majority in the bag before you ever go public. Uh, you you can't do a lot of like weird stunts like that. Chris Smalls like brought a guillotine, a fake guillotine, to Jeff Bezos's house. I mean, that would be you know like the conventional wisdom. And 
union organizing is that kind of like wacky, you know, media attention stuff is just going to turn people off. You know, the sort of like 40 something, you know, single mother who, who's like going to be the deciding vote and something like this. But it seems like, you know, there, there's, there's possibly, and, and well, maybe this is like a next, next question for you, you know, that, that there is, is, uh, a question going forward now, um, about whether this was a fluke or whether they actually found something new, you know, that, that like this, this is the, uh, the, the the model for the future, a sort of crusading, uh, confident, you know, like devil may care attitude and like just sort of tossing the rule book out the window and being like, we don't give a shit about your staid conservative views or how many times you lost at the Nissan plant in South Carolina over and over again. You know, we're doing things differently. And that just that sort of charisma or like that energy and confidence attracting people in a sense. Um, you know, and possibly, you know, the so between that, like that effect and the effect of like we won once, because I feel like this is one of the biggest things that Amazon has in the bag or had in the bag before this was that they, all these previous things had failed. And so it's easy for people to give up and just be like, no, we can't vote for the union because they've got all the power. It's just not going to work. Give up. There's, you know, but once you've like broken the seal and people are like, oh, if we just all jump together, we'll be OK. And like that. So those two effects versus like, OK, maybe the other warehouses that the elections are coming up soon, it won't be the same. What is your sort of, you know, your sense for for those the interplay of those two things? You think they have a decent prospect going forward or what? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to tell because the sorting center LDJ5, it's a different kind of facility. It's made up of part timers. So folks, Amazon has basically made this warehouse uh, virtually unorganizable because they give workers four hour shifts. These workers have second jobs and, you know, they might be working 15 hours a week at Amazon. So they don't have the same sense of outrage that the workers at uh, JFK 8 had when it came to the ruling working conditions, you know, so this, if anything, workers are asking for more hours at LDJ 5, whereas at JFK 8, they wanted the jobs to be dignified. They wanted yeah. the jobs to be, you know, a life, a job that you could build a career on, uh, that you could do for 10 years as opposed to doing it for four months. So I think it's a different context, but I think, I think it's important to, to not, overstate like how different and how new their tactics were because when we go back to the 30s or even the 1970s workers have employed these tactics it just means yeah. that the institutional labor movement has been like has worked from a fear-based model i used yeah. to work for seiu and whenever we put out like a flyer you know it, it had to be lawyerized we had to make sure that everything was right so you mentioned you mentioned chris you know putting out a guillotine when he went to, I don't know if it was Washington or if it was LA, but when he marched on one of these mansions that Jeff Bezos owns, you know, he, he went out there and, and was fearless in terms of bringing up a class struggle unionism, a class struggle perspective of opposition to the billionaires, right? Which is the, the language that Bernie Sanders has made popular. So so I think that it's important to not overstate it and treat it as something completely novel. I think what is interesting 
uh, is something that Gerald Bryson said at a press conference last year. So I'm going to quote what he said because it's, it's really interesting. He said, you really want to know how we did it? I'll tell you right now how we did it. We didn't go out and get expert expert. We went out and found crazy motherfuckers just like us that ain't scared of nothing. <laughs> love that quote. Love it. I love it. So, so I mean, if, if you're coming from an institutional perspective of a union, the, the reason why you want a super majority is because before you even get in the ring, you want to know that you're going to win. These folks got in the ring with no guarantees that they were going to succeed. They were fearless. Right. So right. I think that there is something there um, about militancy that is missing from the labor movement. It doesn't mean that militancy yeah. is going to get you the win all the time because there's structural reasons uh, why it will be hard, you know, to organize certain sectors. So right. uh, like, like the auto plants, for instance, you know, it's been notoriously difficult to organize auto plants. The moment you talk about organizing, they offshore the plant, you know, either to Mexico yeah. or somewhere else. So that's a real threat uh, that workers have to, to grapple with uh, when they decide to unionize. Uh, in terms of looking forward, um, in order for the success at LG, uh, JFK 8 to carry forward, they need to actually get a contract. In order for them to get a contract, they have to hurt Amazon's profit margins. In order to hurt Amazon's profit margins, they need to shut things down. One fulfillment center is not enough to do that. Amazon's promise of timely, speedy delivery, same day or two day, is not going to be interrupted if workers walk out of JFK 8. But if they walk out of that sortation center, LDJ 5, if workers walk out in New Jersey, if they walk out in Kentucky, before Amazon build these facilities, for those of us that live in New York, our packages used to come through Kentucky. So Amazon has redundancy within its last mile delivery system in order to, to withstand a worker stoppage, right? So, so that means that the, the road ahead is still, you know, it's, it's a tough one. Uh, and they're gonna need the support of the whole labor movement. The, the Teamsters need to organize warehouses. You know, everyone, like Chris Small said to me in, in one of the interviews, He's like, look, we have this warehouse. Pick one, organize it. <laughs> right, you know? that's right. That's the end of the preview, folks. As usual, we like to mention that this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. So if you want to listen to the whole thing, uh, you could subscribe at $5 a month. If you want that plus a free subscription to the website, uh, plus the opportunity for a steeply discounted print subscription, you can do that if you so wish at $10 a month. And uh, otherwise, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.